Thank you for downloading or watching our sermon series titled Redeemed in Christ. We are going through the Heidelberg Catechism. The Catechism is written in 1563 using a question-and-answer format. The Catechism's goal is to instruct the Lord's people to understand the Reformed faith by answering common questions from the Scripture. Please join us as we walk through this historic document and ponder the Lord's grace and mercy as we are reminded that we are redeemed in Christ. Well, as the Catechism continues to work through the Ten Commandments, we come to the Ninth Commandment, a commandment uh, dealing with false witness and bearing false witness. And as we've seen the pattern in the Catechism, there's a twofold pattern. Uh, there's a positive side and a negative side. So the positive side, not to say that the law of God is a downside, but the positive side is what we are called to do. Uh, the negative side is what we are not to do in terms of the commandment. And so when we look at this commandment, we understand that we're not to bear false witness and positively we're to promote truth. Uh, so when we look at this commandment, we can always think that we're doing well. We can say, well, I'm not officially telling lies or doing this or that. But as we've seen with the law of God, it cuts a lot deeper in terms of the implications and intentions that God has for us. So what is the fundamental substance of this command? And secondly, what does this have to do with our redemption? So divide our message into first, I shall not lie, and secondly, I shall promote truth. Uh, just following the structure of the catechism uh, that we find in this Lord's Day. And so notice then, in terms of I shall not lie, the catechism is pretty straightforward in terms of what we are not to do. Uh, we're not to bear false witness against or testimony against anyone. So this would be slander or anything that would make people look bad. Uh, we're not to twist anyone's words. This would be like taking something out of context or uh, making something say what was not intended to be stated or, or the intention of the statements or the words that someone said, explicitly not gossip or slander. Uh, so gossip would be passing along information that may be true or may not be true, but its intention uh, is certainly to defame someone. Slander would be uh, truly saying something that's untrue with the intention of harming the individual. Uh, so we're not to do that. Uh, join in condemning anyone rashly. Uh, this is where we're to truly consider uh, what's going on, uh, all that has been stated, all the evidence on all sides, and to be cautious in how quickly uh, we join in condemning something. Uh, this is how you can find vigilante squads uh, being started where people get worked up and all of a sudden uh, they end up uh, doing things that they shouldn't do, uh, carrying out justice that, that's not justice at all. But then when we go on, we find that the Catechism tells us why this is so bad. There's a penalty of God's wrath. So we think about this as a God who peers into the heart. Uh, he knows exactly the intention. Uh, he doesn't need to call witnesses. So, so when you hear this, say, wow, this is pretty severe. Secondly, the things that we are to avoid, every kind of lying and deceit. So now it's even getting broader in saying that anything that's deceitful or lying we are to avoid. But it tells us what this really means. 
And, and when we hear this, it really cuts to the heart as to why this is so sinful. We may say, well, it's just a few white lies. What's the big deal? But you have this declaration the Catechism teaches us, taking from John 8, uh, that this is in line with the devil, the father of lies. So you start hearing that and you say, my goodness, this is pretty severe because now we're actually pledging allegiance to the satanic army versus the heavenly army. Uh, so this becomes something that, that we want to be very discerning in terms of what we're doing uh, and understand that, that we're redeemed in Christ and what the implications are. And so how do we take this and understand the intention of Christ's words? Uh, because clearly we, we struggle. Uh, I'm sure we all tell at least white lies once in a while, at least as we say as a society. And so does that mean that our father is a devil? So, so what is, what's going on? When we look at John 8, Christ is dealing with the elites of the day. These are the Pharisees, the scholars, the people who know the, the word of God, or at least think they do. And so they, they want to take the word of God and take the law of God and, and follow it in very strict, uh, precise detail. And, and they're going to debate the precision of the law of God. So in their mind, they are dedicated and committing to following the Lord because they take the law of God, they find the details in the law of God, and, and they observe these details uh, to just an, an absolute uh, small detail. Uh, and so in their minds, they're, they're the righteous ones. Christ is the one who has a severe problem. Well, as Christ appeals uh, to the standard of himself being the one that they truly should embrace as the light of the world, uh, the Pharisees are ones who are denying him. Uh, we know that in verse 21, Christ says, I'm going away, and, and you will seek me, and, and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. Well, you, you start hearing this, and you're thinking, well, what is Christ talking about? Where I'm going, you cannot come, and, and, and you're not going to enter into this, this kingdom. So notice where the Jews take this. There's no assumption that maybe Christ is a Messiah, and maybe they ought to have some humility and think, well, I should probably listen to this guy uh, because there, there's something else going on here. But what is the judgment they make in verse 22? Oh, he's going to kill himself. So in verse 22, they're jumping to the conclusion that Christ is going to a place where they cannot go because they're not going to kill themselves. They're, they're righteous. Uh, and, and the Jewish mindset, anyone who commits suicide, uh, that individual is most likely in a very high probability going to end up in the punishment of God, eternal wrath, eternal judgment. Uh, so in their mind, clearly, if this is the road Christ is going down, well, then obviously this is not where they're going to go. And so this is where they take it. Now the irony of this is that the Jews have already decided in chapter 7 that they're going to kill Christ. They've already conspired to do this, and Christ is aware of this. And so it, it becomes this sort of comical thing that's going on in, in this gospel account. You're like, oh, well, this guy is evil. Uh, he's clearly not part of the Jewish tradition. He's a deceiver, a liar, because he's going to kill himself. But nevertheless, we're just going to commit murder uh, because we don't like what this rabbi is doing, and so we're going to make it so that this guy dies. And so there's, there's no understanding of the contradiction that's going on here that, that's very obvious to the reader of John's gospel. 
And so as we go on, we understand a strong statement. Christ is the one who tells them that their father is a devil. And so, verse 44, when he says your father is a devil, he speaks lies. This is a pretty severe statement. Because when, when you take the devil, this isn't just a, a Greek concept. This comes from the Old Testament. The devil literally means adversary, the the one who is the adversary, the accuser, the, the, the prosecution that brings charges against God. Uh, we, we can see this in Zechariah 3. Remember, we went through Zechariah and we talked about, you know, Joshua the high priest and Satan. You have Satan who takes the role of the prosecution, bringing charges and saying why uh, Joshua can't be a high priest. And so this this prosecution's not good, but, but there's something else about this devil. Because when Jesus speaks of the devil in John's gospel, there, there's something else about this adversarial interaction. Uh, we have in 6 verse 70, he speaks of Judas being the devil. So clearly Judas isn't literally becoming Satan, or Satan literally doesn't become Judas. The point is Judas is the adversary. In 13 verse 2, uh, when Judas is mentioned again, the devil enters Judas's heart. So here you have Judas, who's adversarial, and then the devil, who's working in terms of that adversarial relationship with Judas. We have 8 verse 44, where he says that this Satan then, or the adversary, is your father. So in John's gospel, this can be an attitude, an adversarial attitude, or this can be the literal person of Satan. Well, right here, the Jews understand this to be um, the literal understanding that Satan is their father, the adversary, the, the fallen angel that, that rebels against the purpose of God. And so when, when they say this, or when Jesus says this, the, these Pharisees are, are taken back. Uh, because, see, in a rabbinic theory, or with the rabbis, they, they've held this view that Satan is the one who has seduced Eve. As a result of that seduction, Cain came about, and you have the competitive lines. They have the seed of the woman, seed of the serpent. And so when they hear this, it's not just saying that they're denied uh, the right of being called Abraham's children. They're being called illegitimate children of God. They're, they're not true children of Abraham because when, when they hear this, they see themselves as in the seed of Cain. And so to their ears, they're, they're horribly offended. How can this man make such a claim that they are of this false tradition, of this false line, when clearly all they have tried to do is follow the, the law of God perfectly? And, and they're trying to follow the details of the law of God. And here Christ brings this accusation against them. And so then we're, we're left, well, then why, why is the devil so bad? Well, Christ tells us he's been a, a murderer since, since the beginning. Uh, he doesn't stand for truth. There's no truth in him. Whenever he speaks, whatever he speaks is deceptive. And so the first time we encounter Satan in Scripture, we think of Genesis um, 3, where we have the fall of man. And what does he fundamentally hold out to Adam and Eve? Well, he holds out to them a promise that they can be God. Uh, ironically, they're already created in the image of God, so they're already like God. Uh, if Adam and Eve really thought through that. But what he promises to them is that they can be like God in the sense that they can be above God. They can determine right from wrong. 
And when they can determine right from wrong, they're now in the place of God, declaring what is good and what is evil. This is deception. This is what we can find in our day and age. You know, you have Nietzsche's beyond good and evil. He thinks he's so brilliant. The reality is, is Genesis 3. is trying to be in the place of God, saying that the Lord's rules do not apply to me. I determine what's right for me. Well, how does that work for Adam and Eve? Well, they, they kind of hide from God when he simply calls out to them and doesn't even come with the heavenly army. So you find that right there, there is deception. There are lies. The unfolding and fruit of this, as Christ is speaking of this leading to murder, Satan being a murderer, and their understanding of Cain being uh, the, the product of this satanic uh, seduction, that the, the problem there is you have Cain rising above Abel. Why does he rise above Abel? Because he doesn't want to see the truth. He doesn't want to see the truth of the sacrifice. He doesn't want to deal with the reality that the Lord is the one who bestows his kindness and mercy upon Abel and not upon Cain. And so he responds by killing Abel, trying to silence the testimony. So now when you take 8 verse 44 and you put that in the context of that story, Christ is simply saying you're living out the fruit of who you are. Because notice in verse 45, Cain tries to silence Abel. Christ is saying, because I tell you the truth, what do you want to do? Well, you don't believe me. You don't want to truly be convicted of a righteous standard. You don't want to submit to truth. You don't want to see the incarnation of God's promise. And so what are you going to do? Well, they're going to kill Christ as they've already conspired to do. And so the fundamental problem and standard of this is it's not that, that we just study the law of God we find the particulars of the law of God. We find the technicalities in the law of God. It's understanding that we have to submit to the truth of Scripture. We have to submit to Christ. That's the reality of it. Satan's a liar. Christ is the incarnation of truth. It's that simple in the text. And so when Christ comes to validate the promises of God, Christ is the one who is setting the the stage, the reality that this is what the Lord has said is true, I confirm that truth. Satan is the one who's always trying to go against it. And so when Christ asks in verse 45 through 47, he asks a very important question. What have I done that, that's so wrong? What, 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 what do you see? Uh, which one of you is going to convict me of sin? In other words, Christ is saying, okay, you, you want to bring charges against me, Show me where I have contradicted the will of God. Show me where I am wrong. Of course, there's nothing they can do. Uh, they're going to try and just accuse him of other things and try and distract him from the truth. But they are those who truly have to come to the reality that to deny Christ and to not want to embrace Christ and to not want to speak truth and embrace truth and live in truth is one that is submitting to the reality of Satan. This is a, a tragic reality of, of this uh, narrative that's going on here. And so then how do we promote truth? And, and what's the, the other side of this? And, and how do we know uh, that we're not just pledging allegiance to Satan, if you will? We go in verses eight, uh, 31 through 38, where Christ lays this out, 
and where the catechism teaches us uh, that we are those who are called to love truth. So when we think of loving truth, this is a positive thing of what we are to pursue. When we understand what Christ has said, Christ is truth. What does that mean? It means we love the Lord. We, we pursue the Lord. The desire is we speak it candidly. Uh, this, again, is like what we've talked about when you think of children in the playground uh, where they make an agreement, say, well, the agreement's not binding. My fingers were crossed behind my back. Well, that's not speaking truth candidly. Uh, that's what the catechism's reminding us. Uh, we understand that we also celebrate and desire the, to honor those who are around us. This is another uh, sort of taking away of slander and gossip, that instead of trying to uh, basically minimize someone or, or cut them down, then now we try to defend and build up our neighbor's reputation. Uh, it's a call to truly desire to see uh, the good things and, and to make sure that what is spoken of our neighbor is positive. And so now when, when we return to Christ and his interaction with the Pharisees. Christ gives us assurance. We notice here in the ESV, the truth will set you free. There's a promise that is stated here. Well, the issue that we consider here is Christ telling the Jews that you are those who would abide in my word. You would know the truth. You would live by the truth. So as Christ says this, he wants them to understand the clarity of the problem. Either on the side of Satan or on the side of Christ. Now, when, when we put it that simply, it's not always so easy or, or so simple to see in our own lives. But just for the sake of laying out the argument and what Christ is laying out here, this is what Christ wants us to understand, the, 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 the polarity of, of these uh, two realities going on. And so when, when Christ speaks uh, to the Pharisees and lays out what's going on. He's reminding them that as Satan's the father of lies, they're not going to be promoting truth. And so Christ draws this contrast that's going on here. There's a contrast between them uh, being children of Satan versus children of Abraham. Uh, so the Jews want to truly understand that they are Abraham's children. That's, that's what the Jews are saying to Christ. We are children of Abraham. Uh, we understand who Abraham is. Well, Christ says, well, let's talk about who Abraham is. Uh, verse 39, if Abraham's your father, then you would be doing the things that Abraham did. So we think about what we talked about with Hebrews 11. What did Abraham do? Yeah, he had his struggles. I mean, we certainly went through that when we talked about Hebrews 11. But overall, his trajectory was saying amen to the promises of God. He lived his life in light to those very promises, the assurance that the Lord truly is a shield and defender. Man, I don't always believe it. We struggle with it. We see Abraham struggling with it. But the reality in the overall trajectory of his life, what do we see? He believes that the Lord truly is a shield and defender. And so the, the works that Abraham does proceed from the power of faith and the power of the Holy Spirit, as we mentioned in Hebrews 11. And so in these people who claim to be descended from Abraham, Christ is saying, well, then you would do the works just like Abraham did. You would do them in submission to the Lord. Uh, you would do them desiring to walk by faith, bringing glory to God, 
And, and you would follow the very fruits of what Abraham did. You, you would desire the good things that the Lord holds out. But the reality is, this is not what they desire to do. And so the Christ points out to them, what do they desire to do? They desire to kill him, verse 40. So as they desire to kill him, this is a pretty black and white uh, pretty black and white contrast of what you have with Abraham. We have the celebration of Abraham sacrificing his son, believing that God could raise him from the dead. So it wasn't just a meaningless sacrifice of Isaac. It was by a command of God. The Jews are commanding Christ, or trying to kill Christ, like Cain trying to kill Abel. They're submitting to their father of lies. That's the intention of what Christ wants them to understand. And so as Christ is, is laying this out, he wants them to understand who they are. Now these Jews claim that they're those that are legitimate. They're truly born legitimately from the line of Abraham. But he points out to them, as they say, no, we're legitimate children. We're those who are truly from Abraham's line. Christ is saying, well, then why do you hate me so much? Why are you going against me? So now we, we take this, we go back to verses 31 to 38. We walk through these verses and see what Christ is saying. Christ wants them to know the consciousness of their perseverance. Why are they persevering? Are, are they trying to be Pharisees and, and keep the law of God in their own strength, in their own abilities, by, by their own consciousness? Or are they truly trying to do it as one who submits to Christ. And so, as they respond that they're truly offspring of Abraham, notice what Christ said prior to this. They are those who are enslaved to sin. And they say, well, listen, man, we're, we're children of Abraham because we are those who have never been enslaved to anything. We've always been from Abraham. Well, Christ says truly, uh, the one who practices whatever they practice is what they are a slave of. This is Paul's argument, Romans 6. You're the slave of righteousness, slave of sin. And so as they carry out this reality, we're children of Abraham. We've never been enslaved. Christ says, well, actually, you're slaves of sin, slaves of Satan, slaves of untruth. That's the reality. And as Christ uh, calls this to their consciousness, he wants them to understand that they will be set free. How are they going to be set free? Well, they're going to truly be set free as they bow their knee to Christ. That as they bow their knee to Christ, well, we find in verse 36 that the Son is the one who will set them free. It's not their works. It's not their deeds. It's that the Son is the one who will set them free. And so when, when we look at this, a Jewish individual would truly understand this contrast and this argument. Because Christ is, is laying out the need of redemption. If we pull this back and, and we look again, why is this so offensive to them? Because we, we might want to say, well, I don't know. We, we'd understand slave to sin, slave of righteousness. And in our culture, we'd understand this because slavery has been so far removed. But in terms of, of a Jewish identity, they're saying, no. We have never sold ourselves into slavery. Abraham has always been our father. And so for someone to sell themselves into slavery would mean that, that there's been some incompetence, some mismanagement, 
Uh, they, they've gotten into debt that they cannot pay, and they would need someone to redeem them. And so you hear right here the self-deception of this reality. We, we don't need a redeemer. We're children of Abraham. We're, we're true sons of Abraham. And Christ is saying, actually, you need the redemption of the son to be set free and to truly have life. Now, Christ goes on, and he draws this, this contrast, this, this play on words. And it's very subtle. Because they say, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How does it say, how, so, so how can you say you will become free? Verse 33. So they're saying, we are offspring. Christ affirms, verse 33, you are offspring. ESV does a good job of bringing this out. Verse 33, verse 37, I know you are offspring of Abraham. So they ask this, Christ affirms it, verse 37. We might say, okay, what's the problem? Christ is affirming their offspring of Abraham. But Christ wants them to understand what truly needs to be done. That they may be offspring of Abraham, but they are those who are not children of Abraham. And that's what the Lord is contrasting in this narrative. That they may be the offspring, but they're not the children. In other words, the offspring is the one who is genetically tied to Abraham. But the offspring, or the child of Abraham, is the one that is truly adopted in that line, crying out, Abba, Father. And so that's the contrast that's going on here. Certainly, you may be offspring, but you're not the children of Abraham. Your father is the devil. So that's the backdrop of what's going on in this whole narrative, the subtle play of what's going on. So we ask ourselves, then, how do we enter into this kingdom? How do we know if we are the Lord's? Well, we, we know that the Pharisees are doing what? They're denying they need redemption. That's explicitly what's going on. They're saying, we don't need a redeemer. We have Abraham. We have Moses. We, we, we have the regulations. We followed these regulations. We are offspring of Abraham. But Christ is saying the reality is in terms of celebrating truth and the essence of truth, we want to embrace truth. We want to turn to Christ. And as we turn to Christ as his redeemed, then we become the true children of Abraham. And so Christ is telling us the severity, it's, it's bigger than telling lies or not telling lies. That's part of the, the details here. The bigger issue that, that the catechism also wants to call to our attention is where do we stand in embracing the truth of the gospel? Where do we stand in embracing the substance of the canon? In other words, the incarnation, which is big in John's gospel, that Christ is the incarnate word that comes and enters history. And as Christ stands here saying, I am the embodiment and proof of truth, and if you deny me as being the Messiah, you have no life. This is the call of Christ, to truly become the children of Abraham. Not in the sense of our genealogy, but to truly desire to submit to Christ, to embrace his truth, to promote his truth, to discern his truth, to desire to live out his truth and to put to death within ourselves anything that is untrue and deceptive and to do this for the honor and glory of our God. 
That's what Christ desires us to do. That's the contrast of what's going on with the Pharisees and Christ. They rebuke him for killing himself in their understanding, while they're the ones who are conspiring to murder him because they no longer want to listen to him because they don't like the truth that he brings. Once again, it reminds us of our culture. We're going to hear, well, that's your truth or my truth. Well, the reality is there is only one truth. And either you embrace the truth of Scripture, the incarnation, or you don't. And that's the call that Christ has. The humiliation to see that we need redemption. We need the blood of Christ to redeem. We need the resurrection life to grant us discernment to see truth from error. And so what is the substance of the command and what does this fundamentally have to do with our redemption? Well, the substance of the command is that we should truly desire to speak truth and desire to speak it truthfully. That's what we should set out to do. We, we are redeemed in Christ. That's the positive side of this. The other thing is that we should desire to put to death anything that's untrue as we walk in Christ. But the ultimate reality is that when, when we do this, we're not just doing this to check boxes. That's what the Pharisees did. We're doing this because we are conscious of who we are. The Apostle Paul takes this, this speech in Romans 6 and draws a conscious, either a slave of sin or a slave of righteousness. As we've been resurrected with Christ and, and we're united to our Savior, we're slaves of righteousness. And so our desire should be that we want to bring glory to our Lord. We want to promote his truth. We want to bring our lives in line with the true truths, his truth, the reality of his truth. And as we sojourn under the sun where we started in our study of the law of God when we looked at Ephesians 5, it's that reminder, discern what is pleasing unto the Lord. That's what we are called to desire to do as a people redeemed in Christ, desiring to promote and bring forth his truth as we live out our redemption because we are unworthy people who have been made worthy only in Christ Jesus. Let us bow our knee before our Savior and live out of gratitude unto him. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. We hope that you were edified and encouraged to this gospel message. Belgrade URC is a Reformed Bible-believing church based in Belgrade, Montana. Please visit our webpage, urcbelgrade.com. That is urcbelgrade.com. Our webpage will give you more information about our church and also allow you to utilize our sermon archive. Most of all, we hope to see you sojourning and fellowshipping with us each Sunday. Until we meet again, may the Lord's blessing and peace be upon you.